Welcome everybody, uh, wherever you're watching, whenever it is during your week that you find time to join us for our online service. We're glad you're with us, and so welcome. It's great to be together. I just want you to know that our staff continues to think about you every week. We continue to pray for you. We hope that you're doing well, and we hope that you're taking the steps necessary to stay connected to our community here at Cornerstone. If you ever need any help doing those things, please contact any of us here on staff, and we'd love, uh, love to help make those connections for you. I want to get started today by telling you a proud dad story. Um, so I know it's not, it's not very attractive to hear someone else brag about their kids, but I get to do that for a little bit here in a moment, here for a moment. So this year, all four of my boys were able to play their football seasons, but the one season that seemed most precarious and was up in the air was our junior and high school son, Cole's season. So his high school season was the one that was up in the air. Around the beginning of October, the season got going, and he soon after played in his first game. And that night was one of the highlights of the year for both Elise and I. We were the only ones in our family allowed to go to the game, but we were there, and we were able to watch our oldest son play varsity football, and something that he loves, and it was just so neat. But what made the night even better is that he played great. Cole led the team in touchdowns and rushing yards and tackles. And as the game was going on and I was watching my son just be a star out on the field, my head just kept getting bigger and bigger. It was, it was amazing. Uh, the, the, the air, the inflation of my head didn't wear off. I woke up that morning and I just woke up and I was just basking in the glory of my son's great game the night before. And then a friend sent me a text and the text said, I just saw Cole on Nine News. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, he's, he's on Nine News. You just need to Google it. And so I pulled out my iPad and I Googled Cole Car Carlucci and his highlight from the night before that had been shown on the news that morning was sure enough right there. I couldn't believe it. Right? Running through the house, showed it to Elise. Cole woke up a lot later. I said, hey, buddy, you were on the news and he wasn't nearly as excited as we were. Said, if you Google your name, Cole, you, you, this is what shows up now. I said, isn't that cool? Isn't it exciting that, that uh, you made the press? It was really, really neat for our family. Really exciting. Now, enough of bragging about my son because I just took that opportunity to brag about him to lead us to this question. And that is, have you ever thought about what you're known for? So in Cole's case, at least to a few people right now, he's known as a really good football player to his family and his church community here. He's a good young man. He's known for different things, known for uh, as an older brother, someone who loves the Lord. We're known for different things in different places. But have you ever thought what you're known for? Have you ever gone through the exercise of Googling your own name? It actually can be a little scary. Many years ago, I did this, and I, I found a professional wrestler on the East Coast with the name Brian Carlucci. Giant body, tiny uniform. Very strange to find someone with that, that name. It can be a scary thing to Google your name. But often you'll see what people recognize you for. Have you ever thought about what you're known for in your faith? What story does your faith tell? What should you be known for as a Christian? What should people associate with you at, with, as being a disciple of Jesus? What are the things that you should be known for? Are you known for any of those things? There's other questions that come in here that you know, I think that are relevant to this idea. What is it, how does God use us? How could we be known for being someone that God uses? How does God bless us? The answer 
to these questions is great. There's, there's layers of, the, of answers here. But there's one answer that shows up in all of these things. What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be used by God? What story is our faith meant to tell? What does it mean to be a disciple? Being a peacemaker is one of the things that we should all be known for. Being a peacemaker is one of the things our church should be known for. What if Cornerstone was Googled and you got past the reviews of the things people liked or didn't like, how they didn't like the speaker that week or they didn't prefer the environment? But what if a church was known as being a place, a community of peacemakers? See, that's a vision that's got my attention the last several months. I think this is at the heart of what it means to be used by God. It's at the heart of what it means to be a person living their life centered around the gospel and around Jesus. Several weeks ago, we started a new series here at Cornerstone called Peacemakers, the Ministry of Reconciliation. And it comes right out of the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. In some ways, you can say that peacemakers and children of God are meant to be synonymous. If you go back, go back into Jesus' time and he were to ask the question, hey, what should we be Googled for? Or what should we be known for? If someone were to Google our name, he, should, he, he would say, certainly, you're meant to be peacemakers. You're meant to be known as people who bring restoration and healing to broken relationships. Where there's division, you are the ones that are moving. You're taking responsibility. You're the ones offering and giving and receiving forgiveness. And so during this series, we've been trying to cast some vision for a movement that we want here in our church. This isn't just a series. This is a direction for our church in the future. And so you will see it in the, in the weeks to come. You'll see a presence of this new ministry called Peacemakers on our website. We're going to be dedicating staff hours and budget, uh, some of our budget dollars to, to this ministry. And we are pursuing growing as peacemakers together. We want to be known as a church of peacemakers, a community dedicated to the things that Jesus was dedicated for. Now, during this series, we've had two main goals. The first goal is we've wanted to find a grand, you know, something compelling enough, a grand compelling motivation to call us into something different. And this is the way to think of it. We needed a supernatural motivation to do something that's unnatural for us. What is natural is division, and hostility, and bitterness, and unforgiveness. But we need a supernatural motivation, a new vision to say yes to. But then, along with that vision, the second goal was we actually needed God's help to supernaturally grow in the skills necessary to be like Jesus, who was the ultimate peacemaker. So here's a phrase that we've been using to kind of guide this ministry. It says, the ministry of peacemaking at Cornerstone Church exists to support individuals, families, leaders, and communities to be ambassadors of reconciliation within our communities and beyond. This is going to be a key part of our community in the years to come. And I wanna thank those of you that have taken this seriously the last several weeks. So I wanna thank those of you who have actually reached out to someone that you were estranged with. I know that it probably didn't work out the way that you, you wanted, or at least in every case, reconciliation wasn't achieved, at least during this time. But you're listening to the words of the scripture and you're doing your best to live at peace with others in your life. You had the courage to step forward, to reach out. 
I want to thank those of you who pressed in and joined one of our, our Zoom groups. And you were there talking about uncomfortable things with politics and race. And you sat in there and you leaned into one another. And you stayed there in the tension. And you're learning the skills of peacemaking. I want to thank you for that. I want to thank those of you in our community who refrained from hostile posts and speech and gossip during this divisive political season. I want to thank you for that. Those are the acts of peacemakers. I want to thank those of you who gave forgiveness to someone in your life that maybe you've had bitterness in your heart towards. I want to thank those of you who went to someone else and asked for forgiveness. Those are the things that are meant to be celebrated. Those are the things we want to be known for. Here's a quote that uh, I've grown to love from Shane Claiborne. His book is Common Prayer, A Liturgy of Ordinary Radicals. He says this about peacemaking. He says, peacemaking doesn't mean passivity. It is the act of interrupting injustice without mirroring injustice. The act of disarming evil without destroying the evildoer. The act of finding a third way that is neither fight nor flight, but the careful, arduous pursuit of reconciliation and justice. It is about a revolution of love that is big enough to set both the oppressed and the oppressor free. That is so well said. Peacemaking is an entirely different skill that most of us have never learned. And so as a church, we want to grow in this way. And so as we move forward with this new ministry, there's going to be three main parts. We want to educate ourselves around the issues that lead to division and hostility. I mean, there's a reason people are divided. And to ignore them uh, doesn't make any progress. It doesn't help anyone. And it's not even the way of Jesus. And so we need to understand the hostility that exists among, among people. We need to understand communal assumptions, individual assumptions, prejudice, hostility, all of those things. So we want to educate ourselves. Number two, and this is the key to all of it, we need to equip ourselves to be bearers of shalom, committed to the practices of peacemaking. In other words, we need to let Jesus teach us. We need to be his apprentice in this way. We need to develop and co-develop with others communal and individual skills, the skills of reconciliation. And then lastly, as a church, we want to engage in conversations between groups of people who are often hostile towards one another. We actually want to facilitate the coming together. And so an example of this is something we've mentioned the last few weeks, but we're excited. Next spring, we're bringing in an expert from Israel, and he's going to lead the pastors in Boulder County in a retreat around racial reconciliation. And so there will be pastors there from different races and ethnicities. And we're going to be there learning the skills of peacemaking at a, at a deeper level, but we're going to be experiencing healing together. I'm excited for Salim as he comes in from Israel to spend some time with our staff and give us some extensive training in this area. It starts with us. And so we want to facilitate more and more of those kinds of things. And so I just want to encourage you, before we get into the passage and more of these principles today, I want to encourage you to keep pressing in. Because this is a skill and a virtue, it's not learned overnight. It's not learned in a series. It's something we dedicate ourselves to. We ask for God's power in our life and the reminders of community to make a change. All right. So I'd love to spend some time taking you through Ephesians chapter 2. So since the start of this series, this has been one of those passages that I've just been kind of holding back, not sure when to use it. But it certainly is a passage that is all about the movement of peacemaking. See, one of the things that you'll find in the scriptures, if you have eyes to see it, is that peacemaking and reconciliation is everywhere. 
So if you start in the Old Testament and you read the story of Jacob and Esau coming together, forgiveness being offered, amends being made, relationship being restored, uh, you'll see it there. It's a model of what Jesus would do for others someday and what you can do with people in your own life. You get to the words of Jesus over and over again. He was talking about a kingdom that restores, that reconciles, that heals, that brings peace. You get to the writings of Paul and his deep theological teachings in his letters. And Paul almost always did something when he was speaking about the gospel. He talked about the gospel as peacemaking. The gospel is the means by which Jesus makes peace with us. And that becomes a movement by which we make peace with other people. Rarely will you find Paul talking about the gospel in a way that it's just about us and the Lord. He always, almost always, I should say, weds that idea of reconciliation between us and God to our reconciliation with other people. They are meant to be understood together. It is a movement. There's no earning here. But it's the simple fact that if you're going to receive something from the Lord, there is a bit of an expectation that we let that transform us and begin to share that with other people. That's why Jesus said things like, if you want to be forgiven, you need to forgive. Paul used this model when talking about races and religions and genders and classes and families that were separated. He said, because of what Jesus has done for you, those hostilities have been removed. We're now to live different. And so let me read you some of Ephesians 2. This is one of, or I should say, this is some of yours favorite passages. One of your favorite passages. So one of the first verses that I learned to memorize when I was in college being discipled because it's just so important. It's about grace and about salvation. But we often miss to see that this is about reconciliation and peacemaking among others. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with the Messiah and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You've been saved and seated. Verse 8, for by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that a verse we all learn early on? It is by grace that you have been saved, not by works. And then we like making the connection. Now we get to be used by God. But if you keep reading, you just go down to verse 13. Look what it says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made peace between the two groups and has destroyed, listen, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So it's not just about your personal rescue. It's not just about my personal rescue, my personal forgiveness. This is about bringing certain people together, creating something new. Listen to verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two and thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, if you get in the context of Ephesians chapter two and three, you'll see that he's talking about this reconciliation happening between Jews and Gentiles. But this is meant to start there and expand to others. All of the groups. That your salvation has something to do with God wanting to make you a part of a new humanity. With people who at one time were separated from you. 
hostile towards you or those that you've been hostile towards. Now, I'm not trying to change the message of the gospel. By grace, we have been saved. Absolutely true. But what we often fail to see is what is the gospel meant to do? The gospel is meant to heal. The gospel is meant to lead to reconciliation. The gospel is meant to turn people like me, angry eights, into peacemakers. And my friends, this is more important than ever before. With what's taking place in the world today, uh, the pressures COVID's creating, you know what it's doing? It's just fracturing people everywhere. Let me just mention a few things that I read just in the last couple weeks. So divorce is up. Did you know that? The number of divorces that were filed this past summer were up 34%. Marriages that were five months um, or younger, pre-COVID, have doubled in the, the, the number of divorces that have occurred in, in those young marriages. These young couples just were not resourced or ready to deal with the stress of COVID, and so their divorce rate has doubled. Predictions for the second part of the year, which we're in right now, is that divorce could be up in somewhere, somewhere near 25% in the United States. Where's the reconciliation? Where's the peacemaking? I think it's because we just don't have the skills. We don't have the vision. We don't have the resourcing from God. We're all really aware of the political divisions that exist in the world today. Um, it's sad to me that 15% of people surveyed in the United States, Christians and non-Christians say that they've ended a relationship with a friend or a family member over disputes about politics. 40% of both Democrats and Republicans believe that the out party, the other party, is ignorant and spiteful. And nearly 20% of people on both parties believe that the country would be better if large numbers of the opposing party, quote, just died. We live in a world that celebrates division. I saw on the news this week, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation says that hate crimes in our state are up 74%. And the majority of victims of those hate crimes are people, uh, are, are, they're victims because of their color or their religion. The divisions run deep. But God has placed peacemakers in the world. So with some of the time I have left, I want to just go through these principles again. As a reminder, the six principles of peacemaking. These are the things that God uses to heal those divisions. These are the things God uses to protect and restore your marriage. These are the things that God will use to protect and restore our church and its divisions. These are the things God will be used to protect and restore and to be salt and life in our community that's very divisive. We pulled these principles from the best practices from both the Jewish and Christian tradition, but I think there's things in here for all of us to continue to grow in. So I wanna go through the six of them one at a time. So first of all, these are the things God is using. First of all, he's gonna use people who are dependent on the presence of God. Have you noticed in the last few weeks, maybe as you've made some attempts to work towards peace, that you actually got triggered? And the reason for that is that you actually entered into the, the difficult conversations. You entered into the hostility. I loved how Aaron described last week just what happens when someone gets triggered. And a more helpful way to respond is to ask ourselves the question, what am I fearful of? What am I longing for? What am I aching for? What am I afraid of losing? What am I going to lose? That was such a helpful way. We all get triggered. 
But the reason we get triggered is because there's something vulnerable inside of us. An old wound gets pressed on. A fear gets kind of re-brought up. We transfer an old longing maybe onto somebody else, but peacemaking is a fragile process because the people involved are fragile and vulnerable. So who helps us with this? But God, the very presence of God in us and all around us, every day resourcing us to do the things that he's called us to do. Cornerstone, I want to encourage you as you move in the peacemaking way that you continue to bring your wounds to the healer. Because as he brings healing in your life, you're connected to his healing presence. You will be triggered less. I want to encourage you to find your strength from your friend as you spend time with him in prayer. I want to encourage you as you spend time with the Lord and you're connected to his presence to find courage to do the difficult thing. See, peacemaking starts with us staying connected to him, being reminded that it's okay, being reminded that we're okay, being reminded that even if we're rejected, we're okay. So number one, we need to have a deep reliance, dependence on the presence of God. Number two, we need to hold always in front of us the kingdom's vision. And really, if we're talking about reconciliation within the family of God, we need to recognize that we have a shared kingdom vision of reconciliation. There's a thing that, that you learn about when, when you coach. Um, it's called a superordinate goal. And a great coach will come to the team and he'll say things like, hey, we're here to have fun. We're here to grow in our skills. But then he'll present a goal that is beyond all of their reach on their own. So perhaps winning a championship or making history or being the first team to ever do, you name it. A superordinate goal is a goal that's so big that the only way it can be completed is if two groups or, two, or social groups come together to achieve, to achieve its, its com completion. The kingdom of God is like that for us. It's the thing that's always before us that we continue to pursue that holds our attention. And so for a team, it might be winning or doing those things that have never been done before. A band comes together to make beautiful music. They discipline themselves. They adjust to one another. They do all of these things for the goal. I think one of the things that, that harms us in the peacemaking process is that we actually don't hold the kingdom as a goal. We have not yet submitted to the king's agenda. But when we do, God brings us together. Here's a beautiful quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So then he translates it to the church. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking towards Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become fully committed to just unity and conscious of the others and turning their eyes away from God but towards one another. This is what he's saying. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be unified, paying attention to other people, but he's saying you need that superordinate goal to pull us together. We need Jesus. We need the kingdom. He's the one that does the unnatural in us and has us work towards unity. The kingdom as our goal. 
Here's a question I wanna ask as we kind of move out of this series, if you're wanting to continue to press in specifically to this principle. I want you to keep track over the next week the amount of time you spend uh, watching the news, combing through Facebook, and having conversations about just kind of the political and, 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 uh, and cultural divides within our country. I know a lot of people are spending tremendous amounts of time listening to radio programs and watching TV and reading articles. There's nothing wrong with those things to be oriented or, or to be informed. But what happens is those things and the volume of those things actually begin to orient us in a different direction. They set our mood. Have you noticed that you feel less peaceful after you watch the news? Hmm. Many of us are beginning to take our talking points from media. What's happening is we are literally being discipled and transformed by all of those outside voices. So I want you to keep track of how much time you spend in that arena and consider how much of it might be changing you. Now, I want you then to contrast that to the amount of time you spend in his word and prayer and worshiping and reading scriptures and serving others in Jesus' name and meeting with God's people so that we might build each other up. I want you to keep track just of the amount of time. And this isn't meant just to be some competition to prove that we're doing more good things than bad things. But I, what I want us to see is that we spend so much time getting caught up in other narratives, other visions, that they are malforming us away from the kingdom. Because when you spend time in God's word and with his people, guess what happens? You too are oriented in a different direction towards him. A different mood is set. We get our talking points from scripture and from the Lord and not from the outside sources. And guess what happens? We're transformed and discipled in his image. So if a kingdom vision is hard to have, let one of us know. As a staff, we love helping people grow in their faith and discovering the beautiful vision of the kingdom. So that's number two. Number three, need to move through these. Articulate the hostility. So I think we understand this. There's such thing as false peace. It's just being polite, being quiet, not talking about what actually has taken place. The passage we just read in Ephesians chapter two, we see that Jesus dealt with the hostility head on. He entered the hostility. It's the only way to avoid it. There are no shortcuts. If you go back into Ephesians chapter two, you get to verse 14, it says, Jesus is our peace, but then it goes right into, he has made us one. And how did he do that? He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. You get to verse 16, he put to death their hostility. See, hostility has to be named and dealt with. Marriage counseling, I had to sit and listen to the things that I was doing that were harming my wife. You have to name the hostility for it to be healed. There are no shortcuts. Now here's a question I have about this, this idea that he removes the hostility. What does that mean? Does it mean that it no longer exists? It can't mean that, right? Because right now, all of us have hostility in our hearts towards someone. That's just a part of life. We don't even really have to feel bad for that. It's what we do with that. But what does it mean that he put to death their hostility? This is what I think Jesus is saying. He's not saying that that influence or that temptation or that way of life no longer exists for us, but he's saying it's dominion. That way of living, having dominion, rule over your life has been broken. It's no longer the only way. Division, hostility, separation is no longer the only way. So let me illustrate it this way. Often over the years when talking about the resurrection, I've wanted you to see that the resurrection matters in your life right now. 
And I'll say things like, because Jesus was able to defeat that first grave, he's able to defeat every other grave that he or us will ever face. Or another way to say it is because Jesus was able to make it through the wilderness of death, he's able to lead us through the wilderness of death. The same is true when it comes to removing hostility. Because he has destroyed hostility's dominion over our lives, you know what it means? That he's able to bridge every gap. He's able to tear down every curtain, to remove every dividing wall. He's able to do it. It's possible. And your movement, your effort, your submission to God in this way is not done uh, in a worthless way. It's not folly. Because he has destroyed it. He's destroyed its dominion over you and over others. And unity and reconciliation is absolutely possible. So hostility needs to be dealt with. Number four, we need to practice empathy as a way to understand. So empathy goes further than listening. Uh, I think we understand that. It's trying to put ourselves in someone else's shoes to actually see what they see. If you're really trying to be empathetic, try with someone that you have a, a major disagreement about. Try to put yourselves in their shoes, hear where they're coming from, and actually make the argument for why they believe what they believe. I found something really intriguing uh, a couple months ago, talking about just the political divisions in the world. But this particular article was talking about the political divisions within the spiritual tribes of the United States. And so, for example, Catholics and Jews read much of the same Bible, but they often vote different. White evangelicals and black Protestants read the same Bible, sing the same worship songs, but often vote different. Why is that? It's because from their point of view, certain things are different. And usually what happens when we put ourselves in an empathetic place, especially with God's people, we stop villainizing them. We stop trying to judge their motives. And guess what happens? We realize that actually we care about a lot of the same things. If you were to spend time with someone that voted differently than you, rather than saying, I can't believe a Christian would vote that way. If you were to put yourself in their shoes and work towards empathy, you'd probably hear that they care about the same things you do, life, they don't want unborn babies to die. They care about racial justice. They care about freedom. They care about caring for the poor. They care about good leadership. Um, they care about helping a, as many people as possible flourish in this world. They care about equity. They care about those things. But when we allow ourselves to empathize with other people, and just using the example of the conflict that occurs in politics, you know what you actually hear? You just hear that they care about the same things, but they're putting those, those things in a different order of priority. It's a whole lot easier to be reconciled to someone that you appreciate their values. If you empathize, you'll actually be able to hear that among God's people. But they're just ranking the importance of certain things or what needs to be done in this moment. You know how I know we're not doing that? I still hear people saying, oh, they're brainwashed. Or they're sellouts. Rather than, have you done the hard work to try to listen to someone who worships next to you? Maybe even in your own family, say, why is it that you believe that? Empathy also exposes our assumptions. Assumptions are not helpful in relationships. So if we continue with the illustration of um, hostility exists in politics, let me give you a few assumptions. Republicans estimate that nearly one-third of all Democrats are atheists or agnostics, but in fact, it's only one-tenth. Here's another assumption, it comes from Democrats. They believe that nearly 44% of Republicans earn over $250,000 a year when actually the number is 
So empathy not only allows us to see what it is that maybe they value that we value, but empathy and putting ourselves in their shoes actually then begins to expose our assumptions that are barriers towards peacemaking. So keep pressing in. Work towards empathy. Number five, we all have personal responsibility to take. I'll just do this one briefly. The best way to describe it is the Abraham Heschel quote. He says, few are guilty, but all are responsible. This is so true for those that are with Jesus. Jesus will lead you to revive those things which you did not kill. Jesus will lead you to restore those things which you did not destroy. Jesus will lead me and you to take responsibility for problems we didn't cause. Now that's in addition to Jesus saying, hey, I want you to own the things that you have done. And so lament, forgiveness, confession, repentance, these are the acts. These are the the way we take personal responsibility. It will cost you something. It will require something of all of us. And so what is that responsibility that we take? Usually as Americans, we're really good at understanding we need to do something. So this one's a little easier for us to do. So we take personal responsibility. And lastly, we honor the person and the process. Not everyone is where you are. Everyone's in kind of a different place. People actually might be in a different place in the process even uh, of believing whether or not reconciliation and peacemaking is important. It's a process. We need to honor it. Part of honoring the process is to know that, uh, you know what? People are gonna let you down. Communities are gonna let you down. But if we're really honest, we're gonna understand that we're gonna let people down. But we just know that we're growing. We're being apprenticed in this way. So we don't judge Uh, the virtue of the act by the result because we know that there's a process taking place and God is the one leading it. And so those are the six peacemaking principles that uh, we're gonna continue to use the years to come here at Cornerstone. All right. Got Ephesians 2 in there. See those principles there. Went through the principles. Now I wanna spend a little time as I close just talking about the benefit that comes to each one of us. So one of the things that we've just hinted at, but kind of neglected to talk about as we've looked at Matthew chapter five, verse nine, that says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God, is we've not spent a lot of time talking about the blessing that comes. Often we forget that God is a giver. He's not a taker. He wishes to fill our life. He wishes to free our life. He wishes to bless us. He wishes to to give us those things the world could never give us. He wishes to meet our core longings and heal our hearts and and give us meaningful lives and to to move through suffering with us. He he wishes to give us all of these wonderful blessings. What Jesus is saying is that there is a blessing inherently associated with being a peacemaker. Maybe Jesus was riffing on Psalm 133, a psalm that he certainly would have known most of his life. It says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured over the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. And then verse three, it is as if it is the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. From there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So here's what he's saying how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell in unity, it's in that place precisely that God bestows blessing. I think it's okay to want more from God. But could it be that he wants to give you more as you live as a peacemaker? 
Could it be that he's just waiting to pour out more blessing in your life as you work towards unity with people that you have hostility with? Could it be? To me, Matthew 5, Psalm 133 are pretty clear. But let me tell you how blessing works. It's not as if God looks at us and says, oh, there's the good peacemakers, let me give them something. As if blessing is a transactional thing. It doesn't work that way. God blesses us the way a father or mother blesses their children. I love blessing my kids just because I'm their parent. That's very different than my kids getting a reward or, or payment for something they do. But Elise and I continually bless our boys just because they're our sons, because of our relationship. That's how it works with God. God wishes to bless you. But there are certain things, certain blessings that only come through certain actions. They're inherent in the function. And so an example of this would be, let me give you actually two examples. Uh, one example just from the non-spiritual world is if you spend time exercising, there are inherent blessings and benefits to exercising. You have less stress, um, weight loss, you usually live longer, leads to health, you sleep better. There's inherent blessings to that activity. There is inherent blessings in living the virtuous life. There's inherent blessings in living God's way, whatever you want to call it, being, living out the fruits of the spirit, obeying him. There's inherent blessings that come with all of those. So spiritual example is this. I think everyone uh, would like to have intimacy. Intimacy with God, intimacy with other people. Intimacy is impossible without the virtue of fidelity. It's a false intimacy, it will fall apart. If you want to have true intimacy with God, there's a faithfulness that's required between us and him, and then we experience it. If you're married, you must be faithful to experience intimacy with your spouse. Inherent blessing that comes with the virtue. So here's a question. I don't know really if I have an answer for it yet. We're going to look a little more at Ephesians 3 here. But what inherent blessings come with being a peacemaker? I think it's something for us to ask the Lord. I think it's something for us to discover together. Maybe it's just peace in our heart. We know that forgiveness leads to being freed. I mean, that's one of the benefits. Restored relationships. Seeing the power of God work. These are all some of the blessings that come from being a peacemaker. God wants to give you those blessings, but they will come through the virtue. They will come through the practice, the submission to this way of living. Let me mention a few blessings we see in that passage from Ephesians. It's all about reconciliation. So you get down to chapter three. Get to verse 10. Let me just read it to you. It says, that the church together receives the manifold wisdom of God. Could it be that living in unity with God's people allows us to experience the full measure of God's wisdom? That's what manifold means, many colors. It's the same word that later, later on when the Jews are trying to translate the Old Testament, they used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. It was manifold. There's a manifold wisdom of God. How is it meant to be experienced or understood? Together. Certainly call that a benefit, a blessing. Verse 18 of chapter three. That you may have power, supernatural power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. I see two benefits there. Just the power of God in our life is a benefit. We experience that by living in unity with one another, reconciled to God and to one another. The benefits are directly connected. But you know, another benefit here is experiencing being saturated and knowing and feeling the love of Christ. Wouldn't it be nice if every person in our church went to bed every night feeling loved, their heart is full. 
You might have been beat up, rejected during the day by others, but you're so full and aware of God's love for you, you go to bed with a smile, your heart is full. Hmm. Those are blessings. And they're somehow connected to reconciliation with God and with others. Verse 19, that we'd be filled to the full measure of all of the fullness of God. These things happen as God's people are reconciled to one another. I think Paul's trying to describe what it means to be blessed as a peacemaker. All right, one last story, and then I'll close. So, um, your pastor has been trying really hard to grow as a peacemaker. And it can be difficult for me to do. I'm a hothead. I get angry. Uh, the, the negative emotion I'm most comfortable with is not sadness or fear. It's anger. And so that can be difficult when you're trying to be a peacemaker. And it's become very challenging uh, during this COVID season to try to make decisions regarding our church and, and, um, and taking care of people. There's a number of needs that are going on. We want to participate in protecting the public health and protecting your physical health. And so that's why we're doing church online. And we've offered that d- during this entire time. But we're also very concerned about people's mental health. We don't know really how to solve that besides actually getting people together. We're very concerned about the mental health of young people in our community. And so we want to get our young people together. Um, I'm saddened to say that just this week, we lost another young person in the Boulder community. A young man that was part of Calvary Bible in Fairview High School. He's part of the Russin community. It's how our family knows him. Took his life Monday night. A death of despair. You go back to the summer, you know, at the time around the beginning of August, there was something like 155,000 COVID deaths. But what wasn't being reported is that there were 75,000 deaths of despair that were taking place during that same time. So as a church and as a pastor, we're living with all of this tension. Don't get people together. Get people together. And then anger began to grow because I felt like that we were, as churches, were being treated differently than other um, other industries. And so I'll just, without giving you the details, the story ends well, so I'm not trying to rip on anyone here. Um, But in the summer, churches were told you can gather people in your room, but you had to use a formula that said you you had to have 144 square feet per person in your room for a gathering. Now that's a 12 by 12 room. So that's bigger than most rooms in your house. So that was the formula. And so that is incredibly restrictive. Now, what made us angry is that restaurants and airports and, um, and airplanes and even uh, going to Home Depot and Walmart, none of those places were having to follow that same guideline. And so the churches began to engage the governor, just politely sending letters and requests that that would be adjusted and that we could work towards something that's more sustainable for churches. Voicing all along, we want to work together to protect the public health, but we also have this increased worry about the, the mental health and the spiritual health of our communities. And we were just told no over and over again. In September, we were engaged by Boulder County. And on this call, several pastors asked the county, can you help us? Can you ask for a variance that would allow us to get more people together? And at that time, uh, many counties in the metro area had worked with their churches to give them such variances. And it wasn't leading to, to widespread outbreaks among churches. In fact, most churches have been really good at following the rules and keeping people safe as they gather together. So this was getting our attention because during the summer and the fall, we were gathering outside, but things were getting colder. And I was looking down the road 
wanting to get people together that wanted to be together, knowing that we were so limited by our gatherings inside. And so I was getting angry. And I was angry that there was no adjustment and there was no teamwork. And I was angry that we were asked to follow a rule that no one else was asked to follow. And what I wanted to do, confession here, is I wanted to do our own thing. Many churches have. But it just so happens that God was getting ready for this pastor to preach, preach a series on peacemaking. And so I thought, I'll give it one last shot. Let's do something different. Let's get a lot of churches together and let's write a letter together requesting just for some assistance around this one difficult uh, regulation. So I wrote, the, I wrote the letter, shared it with some of the pastors. A um, couple of them said, hey, Brian, you've got some hostility here in the email. You might want to take this sentence out and this sentence out. And I said, oh, okay. And then put together the last draft. I let Aaron read it. There was still one sentence in there that was a little hostile. And he said, Brian, why don't you take that one out as well? Needed help being a peacemaker writing this letter. But in early October, we had this letter sent to Boulder County Health on behalf of all the churches, voicing our um, appreciation for what they're doing. We appreciate the hard work. We, we know that they're, they're uh, the, the target of a lot of people's hate right now, and we didn't want to communicate any of that. But then we also asked, after saying that we were with them, that we asked for their help. And we really didn't expect anything in return based on past interactions. But a week later, I received an email from a, uh, someone at Boulder County Health they had received our letter and taken it serious and got back to us and said, we too see that this as a unfair and unnecessary ordinance placed on churches. So this is what we did. We went to the state, found some errors in that ordinance and Boulder County Health actually got a statewide ordinance changed on behalf of six churches that wrote a letter. I couldn't believe it. I wonder what the response of Boulder County Health would have been if my letter would have been as aggressive as I wanted it to be at first. I'm not here to say that every time you're a peacemaker, it'll work out the way you want and you get what you want. We only got one of the two things we wanted. But what I do know is that peacemaking leads to peacemaking. I can guarantee you we are all going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, just like that one, to choose peacemaking. I can promise you that. Let's follow Jesus into that beautiful part of the gospel, which is reconciliation. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this series. And Lord, I ask that... Um, that our words that we've preached would not be remembered, but what would be remembered is the call from you into something different. I pray, God, that the seeds of something new would have been planted and will be planted in all of our hearts. We ask, God, that the Holy Spirit would come and empower us, that you would animate this part of our lives, that you'd be the one that calls us into this, that reminds us. I pray as a community that we would be here to hold one another accountable and to encourage one another towards reconciliation and peacemaking. May this be a part of our conversations. And then God, as we do that, we trust that the blessing's gonna come. 
And we don't just do it to receive the blessing, but Father, there are so many things that we want from you. And we see that there's blessing that comes in doing things your way. And so Father, we look forward to seeing the blessing that comes from being peacemakers. We continue to pray for those who are working towards healing um, relationships that are damaged, relationships that are estranged. We pray blessing and uh, look forward to hearing how healing will take place among those relationships. We, Father, wanna, we wanna bless and empower those that are in positions of leadership who are working towards peacemaking in different places. We ask for more of that. And then lastly, Lord, I wanna bless Cornerstone Church. I pray that we would be different. I pray we'd hear the call of the kingdom. We'd see the beauty of Jesus, the way he's moved towards us, removed the hostility, and we would want to be like that. And so, Father, I bless our church with growth in this way. May we be known as peacemakers, just as you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.